Hi, welcome to the pilot episode of The Green Files, where I am on a mission to ask fellow green graduates and green employees about what it's like working in the environmental and sustainability sector, including discussing experiences that have shaped the values they bring into the workplace, and most importantly, how they got the roles they enjoy today. So today I'll be talking with my oldest friend, Ellen. Ellen is a geography graduate from the University of Liverpool. Whilst a student, she interned in the transport department at Atkins. She achieved a first-class dissertation exploring sustainable development in the Baltic Triangle. And whilst trying out a bunch of societies, she realised that her favourite pastime was going out on the town. So Ellen has just landed her first grad job, so mega congratulations to her. But before we delve deep into that, we discuss finishing university during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we explore her experience as a volunteer in the refugee camp in Calais, France. So welcome, Ellen. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's That's a great all right. <laughs> honour to be on the pilot episode. I know. You're my guinea pig in this. So wh- where are you coming to me from? So I'm coming to you live from my home in Surrey. Lovely. How's it going in Surrey right now? It's going good. We're avoiding woking at the moment. Cause, yeah. You know, Miss Rona's making her way around there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Not much is going on. The sun is shining. That's good. And my legs are moving on walks. That's great news. You're doing better than me. So tell me a little bit about finishing your degree. We were kind of in the same position of concluding our graduate year at home during the first coronavirus um, lockdown in the UK. So, yeah, how did it go for you? Um, And did everything that happened last year change your initial postgraduate plans? Yeah, definitely. So I basically had to just cut my, well, staying at university short um, in March and I returned home to Surrey. And that was actually quite a shock initially because at the same time as I did that, I was meant to be going on a field trip to Toronto, which got cancelled at very short notice. So that was quite a shame. Um. I basically just finished my degree from home and in terms of like working from home it didn't actually affect me that much because I was quite lucky like my dissertation had already been handed in and I only had a few essays and like the exams left and they changed the exams to be um, online open book exams so that was all okay Um, it was more just missing out on like the social side of it and I was really looking forward to kind of just chilling with my friends like in Liverpool after my exams so that's kind of taken away a little bit. Mm. Yeah I feel you there with the social side of it. Um, What about things like did you plan to do some career workshops at your uni or did you plan to use the time in summer term to kind of reach out to companies that you wanted to work for anything like that? I think to be honest um, I'm sure we'll discuss it later but I had The previous year, I'd completed a summer internship um, at Atkins, Mm -hmm. which didn't necessarily go to complete plan for me. Um, So I think I wasn't really in a mindset of looking for work at that point. I was just really excited to finish my degree. And also, I feel like 
the whole scariness of coronavirus hadn't properly set in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to go traveling. Like, I'm going to yeah. be able to do this and that. Um, and obviously that didn't end up actually happening. So I was just kind of focusing on getting my degree done and then enjoying the summer. Um, so no, to be honest, it wasn't top of my priorities at that point yeah. in time. No, fair enough. So so was that a plan you had to just um, enjoy the summer, go traveling for a couple months? Yeah, I feel like I didn't feel ready at that time to kind of go into like a big grad scheme. And I think while I was at university, like I thought that was kind of the only thing you could do. I didn't realize you could just get an entry level job, which sounds stupid, um, but it just hadn't really crossed my mind. So I didn't feel ready to kind of commit to like a three year grad scheme, for example, where mm. I'd have to like do more like hardcore learning um I just felt like I've been on the education treadmill for so long do you feel like that was down to a university then for not necessarily explaining about entry-level jobs and what was out there or maybe your department just focused solely on big grad schemes I know we used to talk about them in second year a little bit um like the massive companies like Unilever P&G they often get targeted towards geography students and a lot of business students um and I mean that's a whole other problem in itself but do you think that your university was kind of gearing people up towards grad schemes and assessment centres and things like that? I'd say I did attend quite a lot of stuff earlier in my third year and in my second year from the career service and it definitely all was focused on um those big companies so I think I attended a few sessions one was with the hut group who are based they've got like a massive warehouse just outside of liverpool another one was unilever i went to um a session on basically how to succeed in the different steps of application and what the grad scheme involved um and another one was with the very group which are also based in speak which is in south liverpool so they were obviously like big corporate grad schemes um which i initially kind of felt oh like that's really exciting like Mm -hmm. getting into a big company straight out of uni like that's really cool and then I just kind of realized slowly like I didn't really want to go down that route um I'm not sure what exactly clicked in my head but I just decided it wasn't for me and then going about trying to find kind of those career sessions and advice and help sessions on more general kind of entry-level jobs or um, jobs which weren't with massive corporations was a bit more tricky. I think that probably comes with the fact though it's probably to do with like resources. Like obviously those big companies have the money and the time yeah. and the people to put on those sessions. Like they have whole teams of like outreach people, mm-hmm. whereas smaller companies um, don't necessarily have that. I think for me. Um, I was able to kind of go out and find that advice myself Mm -hmm. and a lot of that kind of arose out of my dissertation. Um, My dissertation made me realise I really wanted to stay in Liverpool and I'd spoken to a lot of people which I found really interesting. Um, So getting back in touch with them and finding out like what other companies they were aware of or what opportunities were available within kind of the Liverpool city region was the route that I went down instead. Um, mm, so that's quite interesting. You kind of 
basically, well, the impression I get is that a lot of the what you found out about what you wanted to do after uni didn't come from your university itself or necessarily your degree, but independent research that you did through your dissertation and independent networking that you did. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, but I would also kind of say it sounds like I'm being really negative about my career service and that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, They did also put on some sessions um, which were about kind of focusing on graduate retention in Liverpool and kind of coming with Mm. that was we did go to some smaller companies. I did a whole day where I went round to, I think it's like five or six different offices and they were literally all from completely different sectors and it was just to learn about like what kind of opportunities are available in Liverpool and what like key areas of work were there so I think um there definitely are opportunities for those things but you have to be like very proactive in finding them like for example for that day that I went on I had to apply to go to even get onto it it's a lot more targeted rather than being as in your face and like open as those larger like commercial grad schemes are. So that's really good that you got to go to some local firms and companies because I felt like that was something that was always lacking from my experience at uni. There was all these huge corporations like BAE Systems, Unilever, Nestle and you know huge companies like that. I'm just wondering whether you saw a difference in how the big businesses presented themselves to students as opposed to the smaller ones you looked at and whether any of them actually focused on bringing your own personal values to your graduate job um none of those bigger companies did I think and I think if they do they're only really interested in that at like the final stages um Mm -hmm. of the application process because I've been through a couple of those processes and it takes a while to kind of get to that bit I think definitely smaller companies and like more local based companies especially within Liverpool are interested in those things I think I mean going a bit off topic here like that's a big thing to do with like scouse identity and like the way that they run their businesses Mm -hmm. and I think values are quite important to the area and especially the ones that I was interacting with, they were kind mm-hmm. of like purpose-led businesses rather than just operating purely to make profit. And um, they wanted to either like make some kind of improvement in society or provide a specific service that they felt was missing, um, which for me aligns more with my values. I'm kind of was keen to work in a job where I'd actually be generating some kind of like positive change rather than, just delivering like millions of pounds yeah do you find that that's quite popular at Liverpool University or did a lot of people you know were they drawn into the big companies that were offering you know high salaries lots of benefits and a lot of progression um I'd say speaking from my course alone it obviously geography is like very varied it's quite it's quite a vague degree which I think has been beneficial because obviously it means you can go into a lot of different areas and that meant that a lot of my friends were going in completely different directions. Um, A few of my friends have gone into those kind of large development grad schemes um, and you can definitely tell more the kind of people that are drawn to those grad schemes. 
and then some other people kind of were drawn drawn to those grad schemes but were obviously unsuccessful and then as a result have followed other routes but I think on the whole just because of levels of awareness um, and kind of like the hype around it a lot more people are attracted to those big graduate schemes um, and also because they're so in your face you almost like just don't have to do the whole like job search you just have to apply even though the applications are very competitive um, but kind of appealing to students that's probably quite handy because I don't know we could be quite lazy <laughs> yeah and also in your third year it's tricky enough to surviving your last year of uni what with dissertations group projects more intense lectures like it is it's difficult to even think about doing all this research for jobs um so yeah 100 percent. okay so if it's all right with you i'd like to talk about what you did after graduating i know we didn't graduate in person but there was a date where officially we had finished did you go into looking for grad jobs straight away or did you have a bit of a break so i i think at that stage like where coronavirus was i was just in a stage of like it sounds so cheesy but like live for the moment (laughs) (laughs) so i just i wasn't thinking ahead at all and I just didn't feel ready to apply um so I knew that I was gonna stay at home for summer and I got a job at a local pick your own farm sounds familiar yeah (laughs) (laughs) for the listeners me and Kirsty work there together we do um and basically I work there six days a week from the end of June until the end of October and I guess in a way that was kind of a, it was kind of a coping mechanism as well because I could just completely avoid thinking about <laughs> jobs um, and just get stuck into mm-hmm. spending time with my good old fruit and veg friends. Yeah, and it was refreshing to be around a group of people who were all our age, to be yeah. honest, and we were all kind of facing similar challenges. And yeah, a few people were looking for more than that job and applied to jobs and then a few of us were just riding the wave I think that's something that I found like quite comforting at the time as well because Mm. I find it hard like not to compare myself to other people and obviously some of my friends like did go and get those big grad schemes and I was thinking like oh should I be doing that too like is that where I should be um so being around people who had like similar thoughts to me and were in like basically the same position I found quite comforting and yeah it's just quite nice to know Mm -hmm. after we finished at the farm the old farm um (laughs) you decided to become a volunteer at the refugee camp in Calais um yeah so talk to me about this what inspired you to do it summarize it for for the listeners if there are any um I have wanted to go to Calais for a very long time. I think it, I guess it kind of started in sick form when I was in sick form. Um, obviously, at that point, the whole migrant crisis was like so topical in the news. Um, and my geography teacher said that she really wanted to get like a whole team of us to go out there for a weekend and like volunteer if anyone was interested. And I was like, yes, like sign me up. Like, I really want to do that. I really want to go and help and like experience that and it just kind of never happened um 
And like that summer, I worked all summer. And then I went to university and I got more interested in kind of migration, obviously like through my degree and like learning more about it. But also at university, I joined some societies. Um, I joined STAR, which was Student Action for Refugees. Um, and that they're kind of like a nationwide student organisation, but I joined the Liverpool branch. And we used to run like weekly conversation classes with asylum seekers, just kind of encouraging their English conversational skills. Um, and it, it was very like informal. Um, but I really enjoyed that and kind of getting to know like a group of people in my area. And then one of my friends um, was starting to become a rep for a charity called Solidarity. And they basically have reps across most universities in the UK who sell T-shirts and the money goes to charity. So that was kind of the background of like my interest in it. And I just never I felt like I really wanted to go, but I felt like I wanted to do it properly. And I never found the time to do that. And I was actually at Garson's and there was a young girl there who said that she was going. And it just it'd been out of my mind for quite a while and it just came back into my head. And I was thinking, oh, that's something that I could do. Um, after I finish work at Garson's, the farm, um, for the listeners who don't know what Garson's is. <laughs> I kind of just like started contacting them and I found a friend to go with. It was all very like hit and miss until the last minute because of the coronavirus situation. Um, but we were able to go and it was great to finally get there. I remember you telling me at the time um that people's reactions when you told them you were going to do that varied quite a lot. But for a while, you kind of kept it on the down, though. Um, so, yeah, just why do you think people had, like, a multitude of reactions to what you were going to do? I think, first of all, the reason I was, like, a bit conscious of it was because of COVID. And mm-hmm. um, also, like, we literally didn't know whether we were going to be able to go until, like, the week before. Um, so I was very conscious of that and the fact that a lot of people obviously like can't leave their homes so perhaps like it was a bit insensitive Um, yeah I think when I did start to tell people reactions were very varied obviously I have some friends who I literally met through following my interests in like refugee rights and like migration at university and they were like thrilled that I was going and almost like wanted to come but couldn't um and then some other people more from my local area were a bit more they're just very taken aback that it's something that Mm. I would do and it's very like controversial a lot of people have I would I mean my personal opinion is a lot of people have completely the wrong view on these people um yeah being like the refugees and those viewpoints are quite strong in my area with (laughs) a lot of conservative Mm -hmm people and um, so I'd say that's the main reason to be honest um and just how the media have portrayed people and people just believing what they read mm-hmm. which is just not true yeah so so you went in with quite an open mindset and obviously I remember you had done an extended research project on the situation in Cali um when we were in sixth form so you did know a little bit about the political situation um before you went but did anything when did anything you saw out there completely change your perspective on any any part of the situation or the refugee situation as a whole? I know it's a very nuanced 
um, and complex issue, and it's different all all over the world, um, depending on which um, refugee camp you're you're particularly talking about. But yeah, did did any kind of experience out there change your mind about things, or did it inspire you to want to go and work in the development sector later in life? Definitely, it definitely changed my perspectives because obviously, like back it's like twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, it was on the news every day, and like the big like visuals of hundreds of people moving um and so it was like kind of at the forefront of my mind then but since then I was obviously aware of it and like doing what I could to help in my local community but kind of forgot about that situation because it wasn't being talked about as much um so going over there I just found it quite shocking to be honest because Obviously, I live in Surrey and it's actually only four hours from my doorstep, which mm-hmm. is like the same as here to Birmingham. Yeah. Um, and I found the cultural differences in policing very kind of obvious straight away. Um, the police in Calais, there's a whole band of police called the CRS who are basically, their purpose is to cause trouble for refugees they slash their tents open they pour water over all their belongings they use pepper spray they use tear gas um they use all these different kinds of methods and the, literally their purpose is to just make those people not feel welcome like that is it and i just don't think that those things would be acceptable in the uk because they would obviously be filmed and like shared on social media. In France, they've just introduced a law, or they're about to introduce a law, which makes it illegal to film the police. If you can't film the police doing those things, people aren't obviously aware of it. And I think the, the local people in Calais as well, obviously I can't speak for the whole local community, but a lot of the local community there are quite xenophobic, I would say, um, and like right wing, because they've had it. It's not an excuse, but they've obviously had it on their doorstep for, like, years. So while we were there, they put um, corks with, like, shards of glass in front of the vans so that our tyres would be punctured and we weren't able to distribute. Um, And they also robbed the warehouse of, kind of, tools and equipment that we needed. So it it kind of felt like while we were out there, you're kind of fighting a bit of a losing battle because Mm -hmm. the state are either taking away the resources you're handing out or trying to prosecute you for distributing illegally which is actually not true it's just an imitation um intimidation tactic um and then you've also got the local people who are not best pleased about it either um so yeah it was very challenging and eye-opening i would say so one thing that i i guess i was shocked about when you first told me about all your experiences there was it's not as simple as the refugees versus the border police or whatever people think you know by reading the mainstream media that there's actually so many different factions I remember you mentioning there was so many different charities there and yeah the charities were trying to do one job but were felt like there was obstacles from so many different communities be it the police be it local residents um, be it politicians back in the UK do you think you can try and change people's attitudes back over here with your experience? Um, I would say since I've come back, I definitely, I mean, I'm very happy to like talk really openly about like the things I saw or experienced there. And 
the reaction I get to that most of the time is like very shock, shocked. Mm. Um, so I think in some senses that's like positive, I guess, yeah. because it raises awareness. But also like it's not going to stick in people's minds, like mm. me having one conversation with them. So I definitely as well, since I've come back and become a, a lot more aware of the different charities that are operating out there, I'll kind of, I follow them on social media now and it, they post a lot of kind of very informative, like on the ground posts. Um, so I try to share those so that if other people are interested from things I say, they can follow up their interests and learn a bit more and kind of I've got a friend who's still there now, so staying in touch with her and, like, what's happening currently and being able to talk to people at home about that as well is something that I've done. It's just a very difficult one to kind of change people's opinions on because they've been bombarded with, like, media outlet articles that just tell them that these people are dangerous and they're coming over to steal their jobs when, realistically, do you really think a mum with, like, a two-year-old is going to put her two-year-old in a tiny rubbish boat to, to come over to England just mm. to steal, like, your job. But obviously that's not the reason they're, they're coming over here. And then even when they do get here, they end up in places like the Napier Barracks, and they've been in the news a lot recently for kind of the hunger strikes that are going on there and the um, the big fire that broke out a couple of weeks ago as well. So... I do try, but it it's quite a challenge. Um, and I think that's why, like, the moment as well, like, coronavirus is very much at the forefront of people's minds and it's dominating the news a lot. So it's not it's not something that people are concerned with as much as they probably would be in a normal world. And it, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these charities rely on people like you who are so willing to go and volunteer. Um but at the same time, yeah, like during times of a pandemic, it's even more difficult to get people to volunteer and also to get people to have the time and the resources to go away for months or however long and to volunteer their time. Yeah, I'd say that like that's been a massive challenge for kind of the charities over there is dealing with COVID because obviously getting volunteers to come across from England. A lot of the charities are based, um, they've kind of evolved from England. so. That's been a big challenge and as well, like a lot of the charities operate mm. out of one warehouse. So if coronavirus enters yeah. that warehouse, a lot of the operations are literally shut down for two weeks, which obviously has a massive impact on the people who like so desperately rely on all those different services. Um, and it's frustrating for those people, like those people as well, because they obviously will have traveled a long way and felt like they've just been let down, like constantly. And then suddenly if they turn up for kind of, I don't know, a food distribution or a wood distribution or to go and get their phones charged or to get some information and then that service is just not there and they've had no communication about it, Mm -hmm. it's not presenting like a very good picture of the charities. Um, So it's very, it's very difficult. I mean, would you, would you go back or would you try and do it somewhere else or would you, do you recommend to other people to take up these opportunities when they can? I would definitely go back. Um, I will go back. Yeah. I'm not sure when, but I will. Um, selfishly, I, unlike my friends, didn't feel like returning was like right for me after being there for a month. Um, just because 
it was very intense and I felt like I needed a break um mm-hmm. and it's obviously like very physical like emotionally draining work and doing that in the middle of winter as mm-hmm. well is like very challenging um so that yeah. might come across as slightly selfish um but no not at all I mean you have to look out for yourself before you can do any kind of volunteering yeah, yeah. work but I um I don't know if I told you this, but I met a guy on a plane. Well, I met him. I was in Brussels and I met met this guy a few times while I was there. Just kept bumping into each other. And then there was a bit of a like a fuffle with our plane situation. And then we eventually we we caught up just in time and we ended up being sat next to each other. Bloody Ryanair. Um, I was spared from all my friends. And I ended up sitting next to this guy and he was very passionate about volunteering with refugees. Um, and he was going for the whole hour of the plane just talking to me about why I should volunteer, why I should volunteer. And I was like, yeah, like super into it. Like I got his contact details and everything. And then he like got his passport out for a sec just before we're about to leave the plane. And he had so many access denied stamps in his passport. And I was honestly like, what what who am I talking to like why have you been denied access from so many countries and then like a few weeks down the line I end up like actually adding him on snapchat just about curiosity and he's very political politically charged and you know he's going to all these protests he's organizing them all and he's going to BAE systems and he's shutting the site down and I just thought, whoa, like, here's a guy who's completely putting himself out there. And this is, like, everything he believes in. But, you know, there is a sacrifice to doing these things. And even if it's just yourself saying that you needed a mental break from the volunteering, like, it's because volunteering in these scenarios has a, has a cost and it does take yeah, a toll. Yeah. So if we just talk about now, about when you came back and how you almost, like, immediately started hunting for a grad job, um. So was it quite hard to get that search off the ground after having a few months of not thinking about it? Um, I think initially it was very hard because obviously I'd been in Calais world, which is so different from sitting down at a desk every day and applying for jobs. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I needed some time to kind of process what had happened there. Um, And then as well, like this sounds so stupid, but it was Christmas. Like, mm. who wants to sit down and do work at Christmas? I want to eat chocolate and hang out with my friends. So it did take me a while to kind of get in the right headspace of it. And I think I finally faced, like, right, I need to do this now. And because a lot of my friends had, like, faced that thought, earlier on and they'd since like got jobs I was like oh no I'm so behind like I'm falling so behind everyone and I got really stressed out and I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I was like Mm. what am I going to do with my whole life like this is it (laughs) and just like it seemed like a massive deal and it's a big deal um but it's not the end of the world so I kind of just like I just spent ages searching for stuff and I do think searching for jobs helps you realize a bit more kind of the areas you want to go into um because I just straight away like after searching for a while was able to be like no don't Mm. want to do that don't want to be a sales person 
don't want to be in finance, don't all this stuff. So I was able to kind of eliminate a lot quite quickly and put in kind of keywords which were more involved in the jobs that I did want to do. Um, and as well, the more the kind of the more job, job searching you do, the more you become aware of different companies and actually how to find out what their vacancies are. So in total, I applied, I think I've applied to about 21, 22 jobs, which sounds like a lot. But I think for the average graduate or whatever, that's actually not that many. Like I've heard stories where people apply to 70 or 40. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, I to be honest, I don't know how they do that, because after 21, I'm pretty beat down. <laughs> yeah. Um. It can be pretty demoralising, like, like if you're not feeling the best about yourself and you're having to sit down every day and, like, literally, like, sell yourself to a company or an organisation, it's, it's quite it's quite mm-hmm. hard to get into the headspace of. Was there any particular sites or resources that you found really useful when you were kind of, like, I remember you saying just then about having keywords to kind of narrow your search a little bit. Was there any any great things that really helped you when you were doing that? Um, so I started off searching for jobs on my university like career portal mm-hmm. um, but I found for me that wasn't really going to be very helpful because it did just list all those massive grad schemes yeah um, I then went to kind of like the the popular like graduate websites and um, like milk round and Milk um, round. Yeah, you know. I've that? never heard of that. Oh, no. Milk round and like grad cracker <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh, I've never heard of any of these. Well, to be honest, you're not missing. Are they out. good? No. Oh. <laughs> Personally, for me, I got really, really frustrated because obviously you're trawling through a lot of things when you're searching yeah. for jobs. And I was like, right, great. These websites are designed for graduate jobs. I'm going to find something. Mm. And literally every other advert. Well, I think there must have been adverts. I don't know. Every other job advert was doing surveys online or becoming a carer. <laughs> and I was just like, right, I'm right. not. I'm not looking on these websites anymore. No disrespect to people who do surveys or carers. I mean, I don't think you need a geography degree to do surveys online. No, I don't think you do. But <laughs> just wasn't. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's what they do teach you at geography undergrad. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Geography is not just about colouring in. <laughs> So after after that, I went yeah. to LinkedIn. You love a bit of LinkedIn. Well, I'm going to be a bit negative now. LinkedIn jobs. I was like, wow, there's so many jobs, so many great jobs. Like, save, save, save. And then you go on, apply on company website. And what happens? And it was a year ago. The job expired a year ago. <laughs> I literally had the exact same experience the other day. So I have LinkedIn and I loved it for a while. And... I don't really go on it anymore until I find out my ex has been like stalking my profile like once a week, every week for the past six months. <laughs> anyway, so I was looking on it just, I was like, oh, I'm here now. I like see what jobs there are. So I always type in sustainability officer, like, although it's not that fruitful, so I might have to change it. So I'm scrolling, 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 and I see this job come up with BAFTA, and I'm like, oh my God, like this could be my dream job. Like I love film. And I love sustainability. And it was like a sustainability assistant for BAFTA and they have their own. And oh my God, it was like the perfect job. It was an entry level job. And I, and I said to my partner, Andy, I was like, 
oh my god like this is my perfect perfect job and he was like oh my god apply apply and I said well I'm I'm not really going to be able to to work full time until September and he said oh just click on it anyway just see it, it came out in like um October last year and it closed in like November and I just thought why is this still on LinkedIn it's just the most annoying feature of LinkedIn and it's just such a simple thing that I they know, can fix. I don't is. understand why in this day and age that is a problem. Yeah. But anyways, it is. So I gave up on LinkedIn searching for jobs just because of I, it was actually like just getting to the point where I was right. getting upset. <laughs> but you do love LinkedIn um, though. My sister's always like, how does Ellen get so many likes on her LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> Got all the connections. All the connections. Um, yeah, all the connections, you know. I didn't give up on LinkedIn. I gave up on searching for jobs on LinkedIn. Um, after that, I took to Indeed. Oh, okay. Indeed's been the best one for me so far because mm-hmm. you're able to put in keywords and kind of set like an expected salary, which was a really good way to narrow down jobs quite quickly. And you're able to put like a location and like a radius around that location. And I found a lot on Indeed. Um, which I did actually end up mm-hmm. applying for. Um, but also it kind of led me to company websites, which I'd never heard of. And then I was looking at like their wider vacancies on that website. And then I found something that was like more appropriate. So there was kind of like a digital trail yeah. with Indeed. Okay, I see. But then also I have been quite set on finding a job in Liverpool. So going directly to kind of the companies I was aware mm-hmm. of um, and their websites has also been very helpful for me and signing up for job alerts from them. Um, but yeah, like it is a long process. I'm not going to lie. You do just have yeah. to commit to the scroll. <laughs> that should be my new phrase. Maybe you just I'm, named I'm the busy. podcast. I'm commit to the scroll. Scroll demon. <laughs> um, Maybe. So what, <laughs> what was the winning one in the end? Which, which one led you to your job? So... I was lucky enough to get three interviews, um, all with different jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot to talk about a whole job site website, which one of them came from, and that was Guardian Jobs. Oh, yeah. Um, which I do actually quite like, but if you sign up to email alerts, like mm. they will spam you, um, be warned. One of them was from there, and another one was from Indeed, and the final one was direct from the organization's website so like for me it really was just a mixed bag um and I think the best way to quickly find a job that you're interested in is to search in lots of different places and that way you're kind of opening yourself up to a lot more opportunities so that's the advice that I would give so you you want people to diversify their scroll yeah okay good advice anything any like killer lines that you would write in like every cover letter or application box oh god that's a really hard question i think you need to judge the company's like values and like the voice it sounds so stupid but like the voice they have and if you're kind of writing your application in what you think is a similar voice to what they hold that's Mm. probably quite a quick way to immediately just grab their attention because they're going to think okay not only is she literally writing about like 
what skills and experience and stuff she has that is relevant but she's also doing it in like a tone of voice which matches us and our culture and our values yeah um so I did try to do that because kind of some companies I applied for I kind of got that their voice was like a bit more like useful and like informal so I would write in that tone yeah I found it helpful to bullet point out all the different things in the specification that they were looking for and then literally just write out after mm-hmm. all of them why I had that thing and then I was able to organize that into a structure in my applications and my um, cover letters and when you're kind of doing that on quite a regular basis um, it becomes quite a quick way to churn out some applications. So we've got imitate the company's voice yeah. and bullet point the specifications. Plan well. Plan what well? Like when I say like bullet point things out, I mean do some planning. Don't just sit down and write a cover letter. It needs to be a cover letter for them. Yeah, so don't just like do what I do, which is like splurge out everything on your mind onto the page. My final thing I would say would be, and this is something that someone's told me not to do because I do it so much, don't add loads of like fluffy words. Yes. I think in organisations and businesses, and a lot of them anyway, like it's really important to just be concise and get to the point. And yeah. you've got to remember like they're probably reading like a hundred of these applications. So many, yeah. And putting like as such or additionally in. Yeah. Like, it's just something they're going to scan over and it's a waste of space on the paper. You might as well just mm-hmm. get to the point. Losing that stuff, I would say. So just really quickly, tell us about your new role and what values you're going to try and bring to the workplace. I will be starting a job with the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority um, as a graduate trainee in the bus team. I am going to be doing kind of lots of different rotations around different aspects of bus in the city region Um, and I'm really excited because it kind of ties in the experience I have um, from before in transport um, and the transport sector with a place that I'm very passionate about and I love Um, and I'm gonna have the opportunity to work on kind of like operations logistics um, policy making customer service So I'm going to hopefully get kind of a very broad experience, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is going to be really useful. And there's also going to be some opportunities for my personal like learning and development um, as well. So, yeah, I think it's kind of like a nice, well-rounded job, which for me is a good thing because obviously going into this job search, I wasn't necessarily sure what I wanted to go into. So getting a broad range of experiences in this job will hopefully help me kind of narrow down on what I really enjoy nice amazing congratulations again thank you what's the diff what are the main differences then between a London bus and a Scouse bus I could sit here and talk for hours about buses I didn't know you were such an expert on buses man can add that to your LinkedIn yeah I'm gonna have to update it at some point (laughs) for all those those loyal connections I've got (laughs) for all the bus enthusiasts is that a thing? I know there's there's train enthusiasts. It's, I don't know. Do people like to take pictures of buses? I mean, let's be honest. The world is a diverse place. I'm sure there's somebody out there who yeah really loves bus spotting. Really um, loves a bus. Do you really want me to answer the question? What's the difference between London and <laughs> Scouse buses? <laughs> no, I was just seeing if you had anything prepared. They're not asking you that in the interview. No, they didn't. I have to say. <laughs> Damn. I haven't had 
had any funky interview questions that have been a bit weird, actually, which is a bit of a shame because I like a challenge. Do you remember at school when we had to do like a mock interview? It was like after school. I had to cancel a shift yeah. at work to go to this. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just said like, well, I'm going to do English literature at uni. And so they just got like a teacher got their friend who was an English lit graduate <laughs> to come and like give me a mock interview about English literature or something. And she asked me, like, if you were a, a tiny cockroach in a big blender and the blender was about to be turned on, what would you do? And I was like, um, um, I'd, I'd just hang on to the blade. And she was like, no, that's the wrong answer. She said, if you were that small, gravity says that you'd be able to jump out of the blender. And I was like, right <laughs> and she was like this is this is the question they asked you if you want to work at apple and i was like okay well i never want to work at apple ever so <laughs> thanks for that i um i didn't even get like a professional person for that mock interview i just got my geography teacher oh because <laughs> like, i and they were like asking me like why well, i want to go into teaching and stuff and i was like well i don't to be honest little did they know you had a thing for buses yeah that's what you want to do bloody love a bus okay we'll we'll call it there mate alright it's pretty exhausting talking to you no I'm joking <laughs> how do you feel it went I don't think it went well but we can't just like end the podcast like we need to oh, like thank me <laughs> I'm sure I'll shout out the Liverpool Bus Association now and then So that brings us to the end of our pilot episode. I just want to say massive thanks to Ellen for agreeing to be my first podcast guest. Um, And we wish her well in her jobs going forward. Um, If you liked this episode, um, also give it a thumbs up, but I don't even know what platform it's going to be on yet. So if there's a comment section, leave a comment. Tell me if it's good, if it's rubbish, nothing too mean. Um, And hopefully... There'll be another episode up soon. See you later.